Show me the money. This is the MoneyWeb Be a Better Investor podcast. Picking the brains of professional investors on their investment strategies, successes, and mistakes. Your host, Rake Fanica. Welcome to this week's edition of the Be A Better Investor podcast. My name is Raik van Niekerk and in this podcast series I speak to finance and investment professionals about their investment journeys and why they chose a career in managing other people's money. And the idea is to find a few tips and tricks to assist amateur retail investors to become better investors. My guest today is Jonathan Dutoy. He's a portfolio manager at Oyster Catcher. He's also the chief investment officer, the CEO and founder. And uh, he has been in the asset management business uh, for a long time. He started his career at Orbis and Alan Gray in the middle 2000s. He later joined Truffle Asset Management in 2010. And then in 2019, he moved to Oyster Catcher or started the business. Uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Just give us a bit of background. Uh, Where did you grow up and when were you first exposed to investments? Sure. Thank you. And thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I'm born and bred in, in Johannesburg. I guess my passion for markets really came, it actually comes from my dad. I owned my first share at age six. And I've got a nine and an eight-year-old, and trust me, at age six, you know nothing of what a share is. He used to, I mean, this is now going back into the 80s. Um, so my mom used to work programming mainframe computers. This was in the 70s. And then in the 80s, she wrote a program for my dad on an Apple computer, which he used to update once a week. And then I'd sit in his lap, and I'd look at share prices and graphs and say, hey, Dad, what is that, and what is that? So that's really where my kind of my passion was born. Um, and then really it went from there to, I mean, we tried to get me a, a stockbroking account when I was about 10. No stockbroker would open it. That wait until I was 16. And then I had my own trading account. Not that I was a high frequency trader or anything like that, but I mean, I'd you know, send the orders through. It was still all paper based and you'd get the broker's note back in the, in the post box, you know, a week later. Then you'd question why they used that price to buy the share, etc. So I guess that. And then once I was in school, I, I looked at potentially becoming an actuary. But uh, my uncle was an actuary and I met a few actuaries and I decided that maybe the CA route would be a bit more appropriate because there you really, I always say you kind of learn another language. You learn accounting, how to read accounts and financial statements. So did that, did my articles at Deloitte's, and then, yeah, basically almost straight after Deloitte's joined Orbis in London. And really, it's yeah, been a fantastic journey. It has been a fantastic journey. What was that she you held at age six? I think it was Bearing Man was one of the shares that I, that I owned. Bearing Man, I can't remember. Uh, they're definitely not listed anymore. No, I think it's, it's, it's probably part of, it's either Hudeco or Invicta now. Um, it was like a bearing business, I think. You're going back to you, really stretching my my uh, my, <laughs> my memory here. I still also remember, you know, the paper-based trading um, and uh, as well as the, the price you actually paid because you only had uh, the, the pricing a day later in the newspaper. Yep. And sometimes it differed from that price. Normally it was uh, higher if you bought and lower if you sold. <laughs> but um, your trading account when you were 16 years old, uh, w- what was your approach? Look, I mean, I guess, I mean, when I was 16, it was really following basically advice from my dad. Uh, let's, let's be quite honest. Was he a stockbroker or yeah, in the business? So, so, I mean, his background, I mean, he was, 
at Senbank, and then he was at uh, LifeGrow, which became Momentum Life, and uh, he retired um, from RMB Asset Management in 2000. He's actually joined us at Oyster Catcher. I mean, so after 2000, he then started Resco with Wally Gray and Rob Spaniard. Um, Rob's still the driving force behind Resco now. Uh, and when we started Oyster Catcher, I said, please, please, can you come and join us and give us some, it's not white hair, it's not gray, and give us, you know, I guess in times, in when times are okay, it, it, it's, I guess we probably need him a little bit less, but when times are tough, it's good to have a lot of experience. So who's the better investor, you or your dad? <laughs> well, I mean, his track record is longer than mine. I guess maybe in the more recent times, I, I have been ahead of him. So, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's not it's not one or two or three years. It's it's the much longer term track records that count. Yeah, indeed. Um, and uh, did he ever work in a hedge fund environment? Because you seem to be mm. a hedge fund specialist. Yeah, no, he didn't work in a hedge fund environment. I mean, he, he is a far more kind of long only, you know, buy, finds great shares and buys them and, and likes to own them for a long period of time and really let them compound. You know, he'll tell you stories of how, you know, when JD Group was two stores and they needed a bit more capital, he was one of the capital providers at that point and really grew with the business. And a similar story on Imperial. So hedge funds, I mean, they're a different animal. I love hedge funds. I mean, we run both long only of money and hedge fund money. I always, the way I explain it is, you know, long only you've got a blunt hammer in your toolbox and you take it out and you try and hit things. Whereas uh, in a hedge fund, you've got a whole array of tools. And yeah, I mean, you must use them well. If you don't use your screwdriver right, you're going to hurt yourself. But uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I enjoy that aspect that... You know, there's various ways to make money. You don't have to, you know, if you think of long-only space, the way to make money is you've got to find great companies that go up. Yeah, long-only, that, that they are investments in companies where you believe the shares will rise. And in a hedge fund, uh, a long-short hedge fund, you can also invest in companies you believe will lose value. Is it easier to pick a, a winner or to pick a company which you think the share price uh, is overvalued and, and will decline? It's actually interesting that you ask that because, I mean, if you'd asked me probably a few years ago, I would have said, no, it's easier to pick the winners, to to pick the ones that are going to go up. But, you know, so all the portfolio managers at, at Oyster Catcher, we run paper portfolios as well as the real money. And really the paper portfolio is to track each person individually. And the interesting thing for me is, and it's not long, I mean, it's four years that Oyster Catcher we've been going, we've all made a very good money on the short side on our paper portfolios. Where on the long side, we have made money, but there have been some years where maybe one or two people haven't added value on that. So it's actually quite interesting for me because, you know, if you think about it, and, you know, if I stand back and I look at it, I mean, often what you find when you do your analysis, you markets are sometimes pretty good at, and quite efficient at pricing good assets and probably pay too much, in our opinion, for good assets, uh, but can carry on paying a high price or a high multiple for them for a long period of time. And you maybe never own great shares because it's always just looked too expensive to you. Whereas shares which you know are maybe priced for perfection and then have a misstep, you see that multiple unwind quite quickly. And I guess we've made fairly good money on that over the years. But many professional investors uh, struggle to to find the winners. Um, mm. I've, I, in, in this podcast series, I've, I think I've referred to this many, many times. Uh, some fund managers are happy if they pick six winners 
uh, out of 10. Mm. Um, and the, the question is, those six must just perform a lot better than the four looters they've bought. Uh, has fundamental bottom-up analysis strategies or investment strategies, uh, has it changed? Because uh, we, we see so much volatility in the market. And as sure. you've said, the good companies are expensive and uh, other companies are very, very uh, cheap, but mm. they're cheap for a reason. Yeah. Um, has it changed maybe over the past uh, 15 to 18 years uh, you've been in the business? Sure. Look, I mean, I was schooled at, at Orbis, which is uh, it's ultimately Alan Gray, the, the person. Um, and we still at Oyster Catcher, we follow a bottom-up stock-picking approach. It has its faults, and I, I guess we've got a few processes that we try to put in as overlays to try and kind of protect you from that value trap, if let's call it like that. And often, I mean, you know, when we're looking at our ranking table and we're looking at shares at the top of the ranking table, you know, uh, we're always asking the question, you know, are we buying a value trap here? You know, does it just, you know, it, it used to trade on a 10 PE and it's now on a 7 PE. And I always ask the question to the analyst or whoever's looking at the shares, why is it going to get back to a 10 PE? Why, why, because the market raised it at a 10 PE for 10 years, why is it going to get back there? Because often what happens is shares go X growth. And then the market prices it for X growth. And that's where, you know, if you had a share, you know, an example of that would be probably Mr. Price. I mean, it grew rapidly. Um, the dynamics in the industry were such that Edgar's was donating market share to all the other apparel retailers. And that's done now. And for a period, a long period, probably 10 years, it had exceptional growth. And the market paid a high multiple for it. Whereas you fast forward to where we are today, you know, so if you said, well, it should be on a high multiple, you know, I have to question that because why, why is the growth going to be the same over the next 10 years compared to the past 10 years? And if you say, oh, it'll get back to its historic multiple, it'll only get back there if it goes back to the same growth rates. So, I mean, I guess I, I don't agree. I don't think valuation-based investing is done. I do think you need to be careful that you don't buy value traps. And But that's difficult to... Uh, to do, especially if you're a value investor, because mm -hmm. that is what you're looking for. My son is 16 years old, and uh, we have our little investment portfolio, and I've uh, taught him or exposed him to price earnings ratios as well as dividend yields. So that mm. is uh, the analysis tools in his toolbox. And he's developed a, a spreadsheet of all the shares on the JSE, all the major ones. And uh, the other night he asked me, listen, why are the banks so cheap? Uh, some of those PEs uh, are between 7 and 8 and sure. strong dividend yields. He said, it's a, it's a no-brainer to buy. Mm. But they are value-trapped or they have been over sure. the past few years. What, what, how, how do you look at the banks? Look, I mean, it, that's exactly right. I mean, if you look at our banks, they're trading at very low multiples compared to history, but they're paying out huge dividends. But there's also a reason why companies pay out high dividends and you have high dividend ratios, the dividend yields. It's companies, if they have the ability to invest the money that they earn in great new business opportunities, they don't pay out the dividend. They rather take the money and they invest it in their existing businesses to generate that high ROE, that return on equity. And what you have seen, and it's true for a lot of SA Inc. shares, we're in a very anemic growth environment. And so our banks are generating good profits, but they don't have 
great ways to invest that to generate high returns. So there are management teams are being rational. They're doing the right thing. They're giving the money back to shareholders. They're saying, listen, we can't invest this money in our own business to generate similar returns to what we're generating right now. So you have the money. So we, we are we do like the banks at this point. I mean I guess valuation based they are they do look they look I wouldn't say that they look incredibly good value just because banks at an eight multiple are probably right in a South African context. I'm excluding a capitec here, but you know, if you look at the growth rates over the next five years, they're not going to be particularly strong. Also, if you look where we are in the cycle, interest rates have peaked. They make higher margins when interest rates are high because I don't know what you get on your on your money that you leave in your bank account. I, I get about 1% on, on my transactional bank account, but they lend that out at 11%, 12%. So when interest rates go up, they make a lot more money. And if we're at peak interest rates, and the next move for interest rates is likely lower. I can't give you the exact timing. I mean, we need to ask Jerome Powell from the Fed to kind of probably, he's the one that will know it the best. But even, I mean, on Wednesday night, he said he doesn't know when. So... If you look at it, earnings growth for the banks over the next few years is not going to be particularly strong. It's a tough environment. I mean, you're operating in South Africa, but you do get a nice dividend, right? Don't complain about high dividend yields. Yeah, maybe it's more of a defensive share until uh, we have more uh, a more you know predictable uh, roadmap of what's going to happen. Uh, not only in South Africa, but in in the world in, in world markets. You are still quite young. And <laughs> uh, I'm the one with the gray hair, uh, but uh, I cut mine off last week. But okay, <laughs> uh, you manage many people's retirement money, sure. and that is a big responsibility. And mm-hmm. the strategy to invest that money is probably different to you as a as a younger person. Mm-hmm. How do you approach your savings and your investments, and and is it different to what you do in the funds you manage? Sure. So, I mean, I guess we've got a policy. It isn't um, that we don't allow personal account trading, but I strongly frown upon it at Oyster Catcher, just from the fact that we must eat our own cooking, right? So I have I own one share still, and that is something that I bought in 2004. It happened to be Sassel. It hasn't done particularly well recently, um, and it isn't a big amount of money. So, so my money is in the funds. The portfolio manager's 90% plus of their money is in the fund. And I really, I think that is the right way for us to be 100% aligned with our clients. Now, the the choice, you can choose which funds you want to be in. So we do run Reg 28 low equity funds, which are often referred to stable funds, right up to our high equity hedge funds. So as you say, I'm probably a little bit younger and I do have more exposure to the equity type returns because I have a long-term investment horizon. And I really do think that our hedge fund over the longer term is going to be the one, its returns will far exceed all the other funds. Um, And you can actually see that in the shorter term track record. It's done about 20% a year for the last four years, not a long period of time, but our equity fund's done about 15. So it's still a good return. But I do think our hedge fund, just because you've got so many more tools in the toolbox to add that incremental return. Yeah, and those are almost definitely decent returns. So you have uh, investments in your own funds. You don't have mm. a, well, it seems like you don't have a discretionary portfolio, maybe on the side, maybe not an equity one. Do you invest maybe in other asset classes outside of your your main savings? No, I don't. I want to be 100% aligned 
with and, and and this is what I say to the other portfolio managers is if you like an idea and you want to buy it personally why haven't we bought it in the fund you, you're a portfolio manager you make decisions on the fund if you like something even if it's small that, you know often the argument comes back it's too small you know for the fund well don't you think I'll, even if it adds one or two basis points don't you think our clients would appreciate that so put it into the fund I think an investment in your health is a fantastic investment and uh, an investment in a bicycle is even better. I don't <laughs> see, do you have any bicycles in the fund? <laughs> but listen, um, in my garage, not in the fund. Let's talk about uh, some winners and losers you've uh, picked over the years. Mm. Uh, tell us what has been your very, very best investment you have ever made. Gosh. Well, I mean, I, I guess also coming back to our approach, we, we generally don't take big positions in any one share. Um, you, you talked about getting six out of 10 right. I know when I was at Orbis, they actually did an analysis on Alan Gray, the person, from his investments from, this is from the 70s to 2005, and he actually only got 66% of his investment decisions right. And he's probably, in my mind, arguably one of the best in the world. So some of the shares, I mean, probably one that comes to mind, it was actually an Indian company called India Bulls Housing Finance. We bought it at Truffle when it was trading at about 100 rupees. We eventually sold it six years later for 1,000 rupees. And it is, I mean, that is really, if you really want to make money, in my mind, is you've got to spend a little bit more time maybe on the smaller shares and find shares which can compound for 10, 15, 20 years. Own them and don't sell them. I mean, like if you come back to that, I mean, I remember this is in the 2000s or probably 2001, 2002. I remember having a chat with my dad and I said, listen, I want to have Chinese exposure. China, it's going to do, it's going to do well. What company can I buy that's got Chinese exposure? So he said, ah, oh, buy this company called Naspass. So I went and I looked at it and Naspass at that moment, 8% of Naspass was a thing called Tencent. And I even, I didn't buy it because I said, I want something with Chinese exposure. Why are you giving me something with 8% exposure? And if you take where NASPAS is now, it's only about 10 mm. And I mean, the same with Capitec. I mean, when Capitec listed, and I can go back to MCEL, which is MTN today, I mean, that listed, I can't remember, one or two rand. So if you can find those type of shares, there are not a lot of them out there, but mm. if you can find them and really buy them and own them and, and have a 20-year investment horizon, that's that's where I think you can. Yeah, MSL became MTN and mm. uh, it's trading over a hundred rand. Uh, where is sure. it now? One yeah, I mean, oh, it's, it's had a tough time recently, mm. but it's about one hundred and seventeen. Yeah. And then, what has been the biggest mistake you've made? The biggest dog investment ever? Sure. So I mean, this is why when when we're interviewing for people, we we like it. I mean, so if you've got a passion for markets, buy shares and make an investment decision and buy a share and own it, and do an analysis to see why you got it wrong. Because it's a constant learning environment. I make mistakes every day, and you're constantly learning. So probably if I if I go back to one of the scars I've got on my back, there are many. Um, one, in, I guess it's ingrained in my mind because it was my personal wealth. I owned a share called the Business Bank. Now, this is going back to the Chris, late 90s. Chris Liebenberg. Yeah. So going back to the late 90s, I bought it because it looked very cheap. It, looked, it was trading at 25% of net asset value. But one thing you learn is... Certainly in financial institutions and banks, any financial institution, they're generally very leveraged. So small problems become big problems quickly. So buying, I'd never buy a bank today because, and with an investment thesis, are it's cheap. It's trading at 0.2 times book or 0.3 times book because small problems very quickly wipe out your book value. 
So, I mean, that is one of the scars I've, I've got on my back. So, yeah, it's ingrained in my mind. I'd want to come back to something you've said earlier. Um, you said you, you do an analysis on a company or a share if you got it wrong. Sure. Just take us through how, how do you analyze that decision and how mm. do you learn from it? So, I mean, I actually think one of the best ways to do it is to write it down because the biggest thing is, I mean, I guess we all have selective amnesia, right? And, you know, the number of people who told me, oh, I would have done this, oh, I would have done that. Well, did you do it? So the thing for me is write down the investment case. Why are you buying a share today? Write it down, put it on a piece of paper. It doesn't have to be long. I'm not saying you need to write a thesis. But I mean, even in, in our analysis, I mean, so when the guys do analysis on a company, if it's mo- longer than 15 pages, I, you know, and that's including their model, I don't want to see it because most companies you can distill down to one or two things, to one or two calls that you need to make and get right. So write it down, write it down why you're owning the share and then analyze it in six months, in a year, in two or three years time and see if it panned out anywhere close to what you to what you thought. I mean, so we do detailed models and I've got copies of all the detailed models and you'll be surprised at how horribly wrong a lot of them are. And you say, well, what did you get wrong? And how, what can you learn from it? That's the key thing for me. No, I think that is excellent advice. You just need to do it and do it consistently sure. because uh, circumstances change. Uh, take Sassel, for example. Mm. Uh, the, the world is changing uh, yeah. significantly. I mean, I got, I got Sassel wrong horribly. I mean, I can go back to probably 2010, 2011, where the world's going to need additional oil and Sassel you know, is an oil play. And it's why you can buy it and put it in your bottom drawer for 20 years. And if you fast forward to today... I mean, there's a huge backlash against coal. I mean, ESG has become front and center for every investor's mind. And, you know, if you have a very dirty process where you take coal and turn it into liquids, you've got a big problem. Look, you also had a CEO that came in and, and went and did the Lake Charles, the ethane cracker in the States, which was a horrible decision. And Sassel, I mean, the original projections, I think it was going to be 12, uh, $7 billion. It landed up over being over $12 billion. Yeah, that was a disaster. Did you buy it at 26 Rand? We did, actually. We, we didn't have any in our funds. We were not short. When the oil price went negative, I remember, because I don't think we'll ever see that again in our lives, I remember st- sitting up The futures, not the... Yeah, sure. Yeah, not the, the actual price. Yeah. Just for the record. Yeah, yeah, sure. But, I mean, I remember sitting up watching that when it was minus $30, minus $40, the oil price. And that was because you had to take delivery of the oil the next day and, and there wasn't any storage capacity. We actually had, our, I mean, one of the guys in the office was saying, can't we, can't we do something? Can't we put in our swimming pools or something like that? I mean, obviously, it's not, it's not possible because it's taking delivery in the U.S. But at that point, so we had no Sassel. We went neutral. We just bought, and I mean, it was small. It was probably 30 basis points in the index. And then it, it recovered strongly from that. And I mean, that's also, I mean, I guess from our side, when we're running money, and I guess it, it's a learning that I had from 2015, 2016, when every commodity company was collapsing. When 70% of a particular commodity, 70% of the companies that mine it are losing money on a cash basis. I'm not talking about accounting earnings. I'm saying when it's costing them more in cash to extract something out of the ground, something's going to give in fairly quickly. Either you're going to have the the bottom end players fall out of the market or the prices Mm -hmm. are going to go up. And the prices went up in early 2016. Uh, Many people who listen to this podcast are young professionals, early 20s, Mm -hmm. mid-20s. 
uh, and many contribute towards a pension fund or an retirement uh, annuity. Sure. But then they want to also build this discretionary portfolio. So they want to mm-hmm. uh, also, you know, create wealth and learn in the process. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- what advice would you have for them? What, mm-hmm. what, what, first of all, what advice would you have? And second, what do you think is the biggest mistake those type of mm-hmm. investors make? Look, I mean, I guess, you know, from a savings perspective, I mean, the earlier you start, the longer your your that you have your money to work for you to compound. So, I mean, con- continue contributing to your retirement annuity or your pension fund. But if you have a passion for markets, open a broking account and really pick five shares. You don't have to put your life savings into it. I wouldn't advise putting your life savings into it. And do an analysis, find five shares that you think can compound for 20 years and write it down review it every six months i'm not saying this has to be your day job and really that's the way to do it i mean as much time as you have to analyze shares spend that time but yeah pick a few shares i mean i'm not one for day trading i just i think i mean maybe i must keep my views to myself but really if you if you want to add you know significant value and and who knows maybe you can find the next capitech the next nasbas the next msl and you can you can turn a thousand rand into a hundred thousand rand. Yeah. So yeah, don't train trade too often. Um, sure. And I think many people also, you know, contribute monthly towards an investment account and accumulate. Mm. Um, do you buy the same shares at different pricing? How would you approach an an, an accumulation type of uh, approach? Sure. So I mean, yeah, I guess if you've got your five ideas, I would add to those five ideas. Unless you have a great sixth idea, then maybe you add a sixth stock to your portfolio. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming into studio today and thank you for sharing your really valuable insights. No, thank you. Thank you for having us. It's Jonathan Detoy. He's from Oyster Catcher. Show me the money. That was The Money Web. Be a better investor podcast with Rake for Kneecap. Thanks for listening. Catch up and listen to all the MoneyWeb podcasts on moneyweb.co.za or the app. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.